0: This week on Cinemaholic, special guest Sam Nolan joins us for a high-flying review of DreamWorks Animation's third How to Train Your Dragon film, The Hidden World. It
1: is weird how these movies aren't really about teaching the audience how to train a dragon.
0: We're also discussing the new family sports comedy slash drama, Fighting With My Family, from writer and director Stephen Merchant, starring Florence Pugh. I mean, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is in it.
2: The role he was born to play.
0: Later in the show, we dig into some of the Oscar-nominated short films. And then after that, we review Paddleton, a new Netflix indie dramedy starring Mark Duplass and Ray Romano. It's a romano and I'm all for it. All that and more is coming up on Cinemaholics. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. He is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. He also reviews films for the playlist, Cuntprint Film, Hey You Guys, and most recently, the all new Cinemaholics.com. It is Will Ashton.
2: Hello, John.
0: And I am the author of the novel Killer Joy, a book about Pixar called The Pixar Theory. I write about film for Adam Insider, Relevant Magazine, Young Folks, and also Cinemaholics. I am John Agroni. Our guest this week is a frequent Cinemaholics contributor. And you guessed it, he is now one of our official writers for Cinemaholics. Put your shot glasses together for Sam Noland.
1: Hello, John. It's an honor to be on Cinemaholics once again.
0: Well, it's an honor for us to have you. Now, you can find more episodes of Cinemaholics on adamtickets.com. You can email us anytime, CinemaHolicsPodcast@gmail.com, at gmail.com. And you can support us directly by becoming one of our monthly patrons on patreon.com slash cinemaholics. We are a website now, as I mentioned, cinemaholics.com, and we're fully listener supported. There are no ads on cinemaholics.com. And that's how it's gonna stay for now because, you know, I, I hate ads. I, I don't want to look at them when I'm reading Will Ashen's latest review of how to train your dragon the hidden world, film that we are coincidentally also reviewing in this episode today. So let's get into some off topics. A lot of stuff to get to. We do have a new patron. That we want to celebrate today, that is Cameron C. Cameron started donating to Cinemaholics, helping us uh, pay for everything around here. We appreciate your donation, and Cameron had a message for us. Cameron said, "I'm happy to support quality podcasting and fellow film fanatics. Keep up the great work, John and Will. Thank you, Cameron. That means a lot, and we hope that we live up to that and continue to make this show as great as possible for all of our patrons. We have some bonus content coming out this week." And it's going to be a bit of a you know, quick reunion, guys, because we're going to be doing this again pretty soon, because we're doing the first of our anniversary series, the three of us, uh, a new series that we're calling Extra Milestone. Uh, we're going to be covering the film It Happened One Night, which is about to celebrate its 85th anniversary, 85 Februarys ago. And fun fact about this film, so we're all going to talk about it. I have actually, this is my first time watching the film, which is... Kind of, you know, crazy because I'm a big fan of the filmography.
2: Nice. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, so that'll be what. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness.
0: Yeah, so I'm Sam, gonna be, you're going to be have, the expert. I'm going to
1: carry the torch. All right, well, I'll, I'll try to live up to those expectations, I suppose.
0: <laughs> uh, Sam, you know, you know, we mentioned you're now one of our official writers, but you're doing something a little different. So while Will and I are doing all the drum reviews, you know the drill, mm. uh, why don't you tell the listeners what it is that you are producing for Cinemaholics.com?
1: Well, as you may know, uh, if you're at all familiar with my uh, podcasting work, you'll know that I'm a fan of, uh, I'm a fan of the past of film history and, uh, a long, Clearly, long considering time we ago,
0: haven't watched it happen one night. That, you have? Yeah,
1: that's true. I didn't even plan that, but yes, I'm, uh, the, the sole, uh, bearer of it happened one night viewership here on this podcast. <laughs> and, uh, a long time ago, there was a streaming service called FilmStruck. You might've remembered Uh, And it died a tragic death not too long ago, November. November, yeah, yeah. And uh, but luckily, it it was the service. In case you don't know, run by uh, Criterion and TCM, that was curated and had all sorts of special features. It was a it was a film fans' dream. Uh, Unfortunately, just lost steam, I guess, or lost uh, funding. I'm not. Yeah. So what happened
0: was Warner Brothers you know, owned Filmstruck and they decided that they wanted to do their own streaming service. The way that they said it was, okay, well we have to get rid of Filmstruck because we want to, you know, put some of this stuff in our library. They're trying to say it like theirs is going to be Filmstruck and all this other content. But a lot of us aren't holding our breath, honestly.
1: No, not at all. It's a, it was sort of this uh, depressing reminder of, you know just just how uh, just how fragile all this stuff is all the you know streaming and stuff but criterion has not let us down because they announced shortly thereafter after the cancellation of filmstruck that they'd be doing their own service uh very similar to filmstruck in fact my uh my understanding is that they're they're trying to make it basically as similar as possible albeit absent uh, a lot of the tcm titles Um, but it's simply going to be called the criterion channel. And what they're deciding to do is that anyone who subscribes between now and April 8th, the release date of the service, uh, gets access to a free movie of the week. Uh, every Wednesday it refreshes with a new movie that you can watch for free uh, and includes some special features. They've done four, no three already. And they're on their fourth one now. Uh, and I've decided I want to write just a short little, uh, essay about every movie of the week to sort of to sort of uh, spread the word and get everyone as hyped as i possibly can because i don't want this one to uh to to crash and burn which i don't think it will but every little thing helps so uh that's what i'm doing over there uh <laughs> i did uh, uh the double the double feature of uh saturday night and sunday morning and tom jones this past week uh dedicated to albert finney this week i'm overjoyed because they decided to make their fourth movie of the week, Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker, which I'm thrilled to write about. I yeah. can't wait to do that.
0: That is a film that I've been told that I need to see for the longest time yeah, uh, by a lot way. of film friends. So I'm excited because, I, yeah, that it's. I'm a charter member as well, Sam. I, I signed up for Criterion Channel literally as soon as they announced it. Uh, <laughs> I was very upset about Filmstrip going away. Although there is another service, and I'm curious if you've heard about it, Called uh, I think mm. it's called Mubi or something like that. Yes. Mubi, which uh, it, it's kind of, I think it has some TCM titles, but it's like a mix of everything. And it's like every month, there are only 30 films. So you're supposed to watch like one a day and then it refreshes. Right? Yeah. So I've thought about that yeah. because that that sounds like a great service. And yeah. So if you're listening, Mubi, we, we, we'd we love to uh, to get some sponsorships <laughs> so that we can check it out and maybe see how it goes. I love it. But all right, your movie of the week column can be found on cinemaholics.com. Just go to the articles tab and it's right there. And your new one, the next one, is coming out later this week. So looking forward to that. But we have a couple of quick things. As soon as I can watch it. Yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of stuff to watch. A lot of old films to watch, Mm -hmm. which is always great. And then of course, The Oscars are this weekend, so I'm going to be spending a lot of time hanging out on uh, the the old live event Twitter sphere, seeing how all that goes. We we talked about the Oscars a few weeks ago. I'm kind of just ready to watch them and see what happens. We might have a little bit of Oscar conversation about the winners eventually, but for now, we're just going to focus on some other things. We're going to be reviewing How to Train Your Dragon in the Hidden World, Fighting with My Family. The Oscar shorts, actually, um, all of them, although I've only seen the live action ones with Sam, you've seen all of the shorts. Yes. Now, with this whole Cinemaholics website, that means that if you want to read any reviews by Will, myself and a writer who's going to be, you know, who's joined our team, who's going to be starting up next month, then you can, of course, find our reviews. We are how to train your dragon review came out. I think want to say Thursday or Friday. And our finding with the family one came out a few days ago, but we've gotten some comments, some feedback on a few things. Two questions in particular that we want to address. So, one of our listeners asked, "Why did the theme song change?" We never mentioned this. Uh, The theme (laughs) song at the beginning of the episode changed. I think starting with the Fire Festival episode, I want to say, "Yeah." And it's a good question, Will Ashen. I, I, I. So, Will, apparently, I changed it, and you don't, you don't know why. You don't know why I did it. Ah, uh, you might have mentioned it briefly, but I forget why. Honestly, yeah, yeah, you changed you, yeah. It's just like whatever. It's just another theme song. Yeah, yeah it's all the same. <laughs> um, so, so one of the reasons we did that is because so we we had a you know we we had a theme song that we've been using for a couple of years. We just paid to be able to license it, but we wanted to have one of our own and so it's been working on that for a while I'm just like what kind of theme song do we want to have and stuff and I do remember I mentioned to you well that I wanted to our theme song to kind of have a sample of Briggsby bear which was our first like cinemaholics favorite so if you listen closely to our theme it it's very reminiscent of I believe it's the song the song on the soundtrack can anyone do it and yeah. it kind of has a similar rhythm, similar beat. So we got Stephen Von Haking to do the theme music for us. He did an awesome job. And yeah. And then we had another yeah. question. I was um, gonna ask, uh, oh, yeah. Go um,
2: ahead. I was going to say, I, I won't say it by name, but there's another fitting enough. There's another famous uh, film podcast that actually samples the How to Train Your Dragon score oh, that's right. uh, and, and their theme song. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't even take that into account until after I was rewatching the How to Train Your Dragon movies this week. And uh, I, I reached out to John. I was like, I wonder if that's ever going to happen for anybody like listen, who listens to our show and
0: watches Brigsby Bear*. Nah, so I don't, I'm very I don't curious think it's, to see if that's going to happen. I doubt that'll happen, but I hope people will watch Brigsby Be Bear*. You know that. Sure, yes. It, you know. Um, so we had another question: Will we ever do a James Cameron episode? Because we talked about *Alita* last week. And Sam, I think this is more of a question for you, because this is something that your former podcast did a lot, where you dived into filmographies and franchises, um, not on a weekly basis. I think you did it like two times a month, you would probably do that, and then you would do more of like a low-key episode where you'd be a little bit more specific. But I mean, how about it? (laughs) Do you you think that James Cameron, do you think that warrants an entire episode of a podcast?
1: I think so, because the funny thing about James Cameron is that uh, nowadays, there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of I don't want to say controversy, but just sort of negative uh, viewing of James Cameron as sort of like oh the guy who's you know obsessive uh, obsessed with Avatar and refuses to acknowledge reality or something of that nature. Uh, and yet, James Cameron early career, he's made some of my favorite movies of all time. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't think there's a single one. Uh, granted, there's a couple I haven't seen, but there isn't a single one of his movies that I dislike uh so it would certainly be very interesting to see sort of the path that he's gone on and what's led him to this point. I feel like um uh, whether or not all of this uh backlash is warranted remains to be seen until one of these avatar sequels finally comes out. who knows when that's gonna be uh but yeah, that would certainly be an interesting episode i it finally uh it finally forced me to watch true lies, which I'm always being <laughs> bothered about but what yeah, about uh Piranha 2, The Spawning. I've never seen Piranha <laughs> 2, nor, I have I seen, nor have I seen Xenogenesis. So those are the three blind spots. I've seen everything else. So I love the Terminator, uh, love Terminator 2. I love Aliens. Uh, I like Titanic, I'll say it. It's a good
0: uh, movie. I, I, I don't understand the hate book. for it.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of saccharine and sappy and melodramatic, but it's it, but in a good way, I
2: think. Yeah, I think it's um it's just a combination I think of like what he does best and what he often ultimately struggles with. I think it's just a weird combination of the two, but I'd say it's certainly an achievement. Yeah, I think it's it certainly is.
0: Did you see Elite Battle Angel?
1: Not yet. I I I want to as soon as possible um because I've heard so many mixed things. I'm like, oh, "Okay, well obviously now I have to see it." Um, yeah, I mean, I would say if you're gonna see it, see it in theaters. It's worth seeing on the big yeah. screen. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I, I certainly intend to. It's just there's just so many, <laughs> so many other things. For sure, you yeah. wouldn't
2: think my schedule would be so full, but it's it finds a way. No, I mean, you were talking before the show. I was telling you, I don't know how I have, you have time for anything. So it's certainly understandable. Yeah, yeah,
1: uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it as soon as possible because I am a big sci-fi fan. So I am curious, regardless.
0: Well, that is, that is our tease preview of her future James Cameron conversation. (laughs) Um, It's definitely intrigued to me, the idea of it, but all right, with that, we should head into our featured review for this week. We're starting with how to train your dragon, the hidden world. So the How to Train Your Dragon films, they started in 2010. They're based on a series of British children's novels by Cressida Cowell. I have not read any of them, but I've heard that they are almost entirely different from her stories. I I read some of the blurbs. I was like, okay, this is completely, this has nothing to do with what the movies are doing. I think uh, Toothless is like a lizard or something like that. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, the series is now finishing as a trilogy from DreamWorks Animation, But there have been TV shows, short films. I think there are even graphic novels for How to Train Your Dragon. So I think just calling this a trilogy might be a little misleading. It does sort of feel like it's the capping of a franchise in a lot of ways, but probably a franchise that's going to keep going maybe in some other directions, probably not in the way of any films, but they could keep doing TV shows and and all kinds of extra stuff about the world of Burke in between the films for as long as they want. And I think they would be pretty successful doing that. Personally, Sam, have have you been a fan of like the the TV shows, the, the extra stuff at all, or is it just the films for you? I
1: have I have not seen the TV shows or the supplemental materials. For me, it's only the trilogy of movies. Right. Um, Same here. And and only in the past week or so, so that I. That I uh, revisited them officially, so yeah.
2: And what about you, Will? Yeah, I never got into the extra stuff. I just saw the films, and I had only seen them once before this week. So I was rewatching them for the first time this week as well.
0: I, I didn't rewatch any of them. I didn't have time this week, and I wish I I had because I really like the first two films a lot. So, and I think it would have been. A little helpful, you know, because this movie, obviously, <laughs> is a continue, it's a continuation, but I was never confused or anything like that. Anyway, yeah. so Dean Dubois co-wrote and co-directed the first film. Uh, he, I think, I forget who the other people were, but yeah, he wasn't the only person. But then in the next two Wasn't it uh,
2: Chris Sanders? Chris Sanders, yeah. They made yeah. Lilo and Stitch together in Little Mermaid, I believe.
0: Not Little Mermaid, but was? yeah, because that was, that was Clements and Musker. But
2: Oh, yeah, you're right. My
0: bad. Sorry. Uh, but Lilo and Stitch, I uh, I guess so. I, I, I blank on who did that film, but I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, I'll but the second two films that Dubois did for How to Train Your Dragon, he was the only director and writer, including this new one. And so The Hidden World, it's been out in a few countries for a little while already. And we were talking about this before the show that, you know, a lot of you listening may have seen this movie weeks ago, maybe a month ago. The film itself wraps up the story of Hiccup, who is once again voiced by Jay Baruchel. his best bud dragon Toothless, and all of his Viking friends from around Berk, which is a village where humans and dragons cohabitate under Hiccup's leadership as the newly appointed chief. But danger strikes when a dragon hunter named Grimmel, voiced by F. Murray Abraham, is hired by some of the, let's call them annoyed warlords in the background of the second film, who they want to put Hiccup in his place and steal all of his dragons for their own purposes. There's also a side story about Toothless, who is a night fury, encountering and becoming infatuated with a light fury of a similar species. But after their first meeting, Hiccup comes across a trap laid by the villain Grimmel. So we have this clip from very early in the film. Eret, from the second film, voiced by Kit Harington, tells Hiccup and Astrid, who's voiced by America Ferreira, about what they should expect from Grimmel and what challenges might await them and the rest of the Dragon Riders. Here is the clip.
2: I know this handiwork, Grimmel the Grizzly, famous back where I'm from, the smartest dragon hunter I ever met. Well, next to me, of course. He can't be that smart. He left his trap unmanned. (laughs) Nothing's accidental when it comes to old Grimmel. He lives for the hunt, to get inside the mind of his prey, to control its every choice, It's all a game to him.
0: Well, he doesn't know who he's playing with.
2: Yeah. Well, we've dealt with
0: this kind before. Don't underestimate him, Hiccup. Mark my words, he'll be back. Then we'll be waiting for him. All right. That is a clip from How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Now, Will Ashen, you mentioned in your review that this trilogy cleanly spans the last decade because the first one came out in Mm -hmm. 2010, the second one in 2014, and now five years later, 2019. So before you get into your overall thoughts on the conclusion of the trilogy, but what has been your general impression of these films in the last decade?
2: Uh, well, I did like the first movie. I never quite got to the same, like astounding heights that a lot of people have with them, but definitely respect them immensely. Um, I think as a 3d experience, they were certainly among like, I, I remember the 3d experience alone was very much among the highest of the 3d movies I've seen, but I just think it, The voice work was strong. The animation was, uh, had like this nice fluidity to it that I still wish it was in 2D animation. There was some part of me I always felt like just how much care and detail went into the backgrounds and designs. That just, I think they would have popped more in 2D, but I I do think there is something about how well it translated into 3D that I I have to kind of balance the two. But when I saw the second one in theaters, I, I liked it, but I never quite loved it. But, um, Rewatching it i don't know. i really liked it the second time i don't know what happened but i just thought everything about it was stronger than the first and uh that's how i came into this new
0: movie interesting and so okay sam noland let's start with you how to train mm-hmm. your dragon the hidden world what, what, what do you think was it was this a satisfying conclusion to the how to train your dragon series in your opinion
1: i think it was um because <clears throat> uh the second one i had never seen before this week and the first one it had been like the better part of a decade so i was coming in at this from a very similar uh position to will uh and personally i actually really dug the first one i'm with popular opinion on that one i think that one's really solid um and uh i think the second one uh i guess will and i are a generational tale because i liked it but never loved it so who knows i'm i'm sure that uh uh, I'll come around on the second time but watching this third one uh, I was like you know what this is this is a pretty damn good trilogy I gotta admit uh, I think it really DreamWorks is kind of uh, hit or miss for me but I think there's something about just the the, the emotion put into this uh, specifically in the relationship between Hiccup and Toothless obviously uh, that really makes it stand out and makes it uh, not feel cynical in any way and it's funny that you mentioned the book series because i had no idea it was a book series until one of my friends uh informed me of that and i was like yeah you know it's it's it is weird how these movies aren't really about teaching the audience how to train a dragon so i guess it makes sense
0: <laughs> well the name um, of the the books only one of them was how to train your dragon they they all have like different names bizarre. like how to become a pirate or something like that and yeah, yeah. Because those books are about Hiccup sort of becoming a man, and there's like a lot of little tales about him growing into like the chiefdom, which you're right. It's like completely different from these movies.
2: Yeah. I feel like, if anything, this is like the approach they should have taken for those Fantastic Beast movies Mm. based (laughs) on the source material, but I digress. (laughs) Ah, yeah.
0: How to Train Your Hippogriff. There you go. All right. Well, what about you, Will Ashton? What what do you think of this one? I already know because I read Um, your review, but. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't
2: know. I, I really am glad that people are digging this movie as much as they are. And I'm glad that a lot of fans are considering it such a satisfying conclusion to this trilogy. But for me, it left me a little wanting and I'm not quite sure exactly why, even though I wrote nearly 2000 words trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, I think it's just because I like the ending of it a lot. Like, I think the ending is really what captivated me and made me realize, like, oh, this is such like that last scene felt so fitting for a finale of the film that I'm willing to overlook mm-hmm. what I consider a lot of the flaws of the film, but the lead up to it just felt weirdly underwhelming in a way that was not anticipating. And I think it's because, uh, is his name Dean de the director Dean, Dean de Yeah. Dean de And I looked it up. He did do Lilo and stitch. Okay. Uh That was his. So yeah. Um, it felt like he was kind of at odds with, uh, respecting the simplicity and the kind of, Eloquent charm of the first movie while uh, matching up with the kind of epicness and grandiose uh, tone that he had with that second film. So, this movie kind of felt like it was trying to be a mix of the two, and I never quite found it to be fluid in that regard. Like, it felt like it was kind of uh, like if this is the story they went for the third film, it just felt kind of lukewarm for me. Like, I I don't quite get why this is the, the approach he took. For this particular film especially considering that the villain itself while i would say probably the most political of all the villains of the film series uh i, I never quite found him engaging beyond being like oh it's i nice see f Murray abraham in films again i, I always like seeing <laughs> or hearing at least f Murray abraham um but yeah i don't know i i still think what works in the series works like the character design for the dragons and the vikings is always great i just love how massive those vikings are Ah, uh, they're just huge. <laughs> uh, um i I think everything about the world building is nice. i I think the emotion is there. But for me, just something felt lacking. And I guess we'll have to figure that out as we keep talking.
0: Mm. Well, you know, for me, I probably had the lowest expectations for, for months. I have been watching these trailers and I've been having the same thought that you have, Willow, where I'm like, this is how you finish it. <laughs> like, I never thought the idea of this like romantic subplot to me, Grimmel just looked like Drago again. There was nothing about it where I was like, this doesn't feel like the right story. I, I don't understand. And maybe, maybe that helped me out because watching this film, I, I was one of the fully satisfied. I, I think that this film does balance those two things really well, at least for me. I, I think that it had some epic stuff to it, but I liked that it didn't try to sort of recapture the the big mayhem set pieces of the second film, because that was one of my criticisms of that one. I thought that it was a mm. little bit too heavy-handed, a little bit too... I didn't like the conclusion of that film. I didn't, I didn't like how the alpha stuff was... You know, they felt like weird rules to me. I, the things I liked about that film... Where when it like really zeroed in on the relationship between Hiccup and his parents. And mm-hmm. I like how they continued that into this third one by sort of dealing with Hiccup, you know, trying to be a leader. You know, th- this movie kind of reminded me of Black Panther where, okay, he's the king. And how is he going to be king? How is he going to grow into that role? How is he going to make decisions and i thought that there was just a really coherent story thread here for hiccup learning to let go say goodbye to things make hard decisions rely on astrid and you know rely on this like future and sort of like leaving past things behind because that's what's best you know for everyone involved and to me that's why the ending really works because the ending i thought was pitch perfect in terms of wrapping up the story's emotional beats from the first one because you know the theme here is that Hiccup kind of feels a little helpless without Toothless, and you know there there is sort of that that tug and pull between maybe he's not ready for marriage. You know that's a big thread here is like he and Astrid, you know, are getting to that point where you know it's going to have to tie the knot, right? And it's it's something where how how is he going to feel like he's good enough? How is he going to feel like he's good enough to be chief to marry the girl of his dreams when at the same time you know he's so caught up in you know, the dragons and protecting them and, you know, and Toothless sort of fighting his battles. And that just really resonated with me. That sort of coming of age tale that sort of has spanned these three movies. And yeah, I, I, I don't really understand why it didn't work for you, Will, but I'll keep hearing you out. For for me, this, this I mean, one worked about as well as it could have.
2: I didn't say it didn't work. I just don't think it worked as well as I would have hoped. But okay. anyway, yeah, sorry. I
0: don't know. Hearing all of that, Sam Noland, um, which one of us is yeah. right you have to pick?
1: You know, I'm. I I was thinking this. I read both of your uh, uh, what you guys wrote on uh, Letterbox, I believe, and I'm like, you know, what, I'm sort of stuck as as you might expect, right between you two, because I think you're right, John. I think the um it the fact that it it does feel like it's sort of winding down the entire franchise, I think, is really effective because, um, as you mentioned with the plot, it's sort of. Starts in a somewhat similar fashion to uh, How to Train Your Dragon 2, where Mm -hmm. there's sort of this crazed, maniacal uh, warlord who – F. Murray Abraham, by the way, I really loved in this. He's like a Bond villain, just this this tall, uh, imposing, vaguely Eastern European guy. Uh, I, really I liked dug him.
0: That. I liked him much better than Drago. Far more memorable, far more menacing to me. The only thing I remember about Drago is he didn't have an arm, which I was like, "Well, none of the Vikings do." So, what, what's your problem? Yeah.
1: yeah, and none of the Vikings are Scottish, too, except Craig Ferguson and Gerard Butler. Literally, yeah. everyone else is American, which always <laughs> sort of weirded me out. Uh, but, but, anyways, I digress um the fact that it sort of starts out in a similar place and it's the decision is made very early on like okay you know what this it happened once before it's probably going to happen again maybe uh maybe a change needs to be made and it does feel like that that uh we're sort of moving on to something else and i know that's sort of vague but i'm just sort of trying not to give anything away um and it really does it, it it was just effective for me in how, uh, in how a lot of it is in action, like the second one. Uh, I think I agree more with John on that point. How, uh, for whatever reason, the second one just felt like a lot of mythology and not a lot of story. If that makes any sense.
0: Like in the uh, second one, you would never have just like two dragons. You know, like it's Wally. You know, like there are a couple (laughs) of things like scenes like that in this movie where everything slows down and it's kind of quiet. And Uh, that kind of fascinated me that they they kind of took that risk. I would I don't know if it fully worked, but, you know, it was definitely bolder and a little bit quieter in the second movie, which does have my favorite scene from the entire series with the uh, the song, you know, with uh, with Stoic and Valka. But other than that. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a great scene. (laughs) I, I really dug that scene. Uh, and speaking of Stoic, I also love there are a lot of flashbacks in the third one uh, with the uh, Gerard Butler. I love that his name is literally Stoic, too. Like, that's just so funny to me.
0: Stoic um, the Vast,
1: of course. Stoic the Vast. Yeah, that's such a Viking name. I feel bad that his uh,
0: best friend's name is Gobber, which has always <laughs> felt a little... We love Craig Ferguson around here.
2: Oh, oh yeah. for sure, yeah.
1: Uh, but yeah, it really does uh, with the flashbacks, it really does feel like it's sort of reflecting on the entire trilogy, the journey that it's gone through. I'm sure like uh, like Toy Story, which spanned you know 10, 15 years, uh, I'm sure there are plenty of children uh, or, or people like myself who sort of grew up with it in a way. It just this wasn't prevalent in my life, but I'm sure it was with others. And so I like the overarching, Story of sort of uh, just moving on to new things, accepting change. Uh, I think from plot point to plot point, it it does uh, doesn't quite work all the time, I thought. Um I don't know if you had the same problem, will, but there are certain. There are certain plot points where I'm like, okay, this should be a big deal, and it doesn't quite feel like it. Like, without giving anything away, mm-hmm. uh, there is a plot point, as I've said many times, where they sort of leave something behind, and it sort of just comes and goes. I'm like, is that not is that supposed to be a big deal? It seems like it should. Right. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular, and there are a few others that sort of uh, are just sort of weirdly paced, and so I would have liked it to be a little bit more. Uh, just sort of, just sort of dwell on little things like that a little bit more, but by and large, I I think this really does work. Uh, and it really does serve as a good way to, to close off this trilogy. I hope they don't make a fourth one because I don't know what they're going to do, but you know, I wouldn't put it past them at all.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I think that would be a huge shame. I I will say, yeah, go
2: ahead. No, just... Gonna say I, that's actually one of the things I do commend about the film is that it has this strong message of like letting things go and just accepting when it's time to say goodbye, which is fairly progressive for a studio like DreamWorks Animation.
0: Toy who Story is 4 known literally for comes making out in sequels
2: June. upon sequels, yeah. <laughs> well, that's Pixar, right? Yeah, but, but, um, but what
0: I'm saying is like, yeah, Toy Story 3 had the same deal, and then they were right. like, oh, well, mm. we'll still make another one, right?
2: Right, but until they say we are making. Uh, how to Train Your Dragon Four? We have to assume that this is the last one, and if that's the case, then I think it's a very yeah. progressive message for them to say yeah. as a studio.
0: Yeah. So I think my my big issue that I kept having was like I knew as the movie was going, I was like, they're making the villain too powerful. <laughs> they're making they're falling into that trap where. Grimmel is so good at what he does. He's so powerful. He's so omniscient, right? That I was like, there's no way that it's going to be satisfying the way that they conclude that story and resolve that conflict. And in a way, I think I was right. It it doesn't hinder the film at all, but it is like, I did fall into this thing. It was like, I'd rather The villain be too menacing and then it's not as satisfying the way he wraps up Than have a really boring villain all the way through, to be kind Mm. of honest. So that that was kind of a thing that I sort of compromised on with this film. I don't think that it, you know, I I don't know how I really compare it to the first two films because I just feel like it really kind of weaves in. To the first two and I think it's better at a couple of things a little weaker in some but yeah I guess there was nothing in this where I felt like anything was all that weak maybe some of the comedic timing was a little oh, off for some of the jokes
2: the jokes are so bad in this film I have <laughs> yeah. to say that it's I like it's I mean the times, comedy but... I mean the comedy in the series has been fairly bad in general and I do plot again talking about DreamWorks animation, I am glad that they're not relying on pop culture gags as they normally do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like that they are kind of progressing or trying to do stuff that's more ingrained. But I think, I think back to like the Kung Fu Panda films, which are funny, and they don't have to rely on pop culture gags. They're just funny movies. And mm-hmm. so for me, like the comedy always felt forced in these films. I think it was a little better than the second one, which I think is another reason why that one's probably my favorite now. But um, yeah, I, I think in this movie especially, like the comedy very much felt at odds with every dramatic moment that they tried to push in here. Except mm-hmm. for the scene where um, Hiccup tried to woo the um, <laughs> Light Rider or Light Fury or whatever. Yeah, which is like the one scene I actually remember like chuckling at. So I'll give it credit oh, for
1: that. I, I thought uh, I really thought Kristen Wiig's character was funny throughout all three of them. I don't know why there's there's something about uh, is it is it Roughnut or Toughnut? I forget which one she is. I think she's um,
0: tough Nut, yeah. right?
1: I yeah, guess they, They're twins. So I can't remember.
2: Yeah, it's something. Yeah, like
1: I know it, it's low hanging fruit, but I really it, it got it tickled my funny bone. So <laughs> are you got... talking
2: about that one scene in particular in the jail cell? that characters. one and yeah, yeah. J- just for an entire character
0: <laughs> well they they just, kind of gave all of the side characters a little bit more of subplots this time around which i thought was a bit hit or miss but i do appreciate that they they brought in all of the voice actors except for tj miller which was appreciated and oh really yeah that oh. wasn't him oh you couldn't tell <laughs> i couldn't no i don't know i don't know his voice very well which the funny uh, thing about that is they gave roughnut so many lines <laughs> So right, it's like really you can't weird. really avoid, yeah. But I didn't care because I didn't want to hear TJ Miller's voice. To be honest,
2: it was just weird because like there, were, like set, like moments, like kind of towards the beginning and stuff, where I was like, okay, like it kind of sounds like him. But then like that one scene where it's like him and Hiccup talking, it's like, yeah, oh yeah, this is clearly a different person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like yeah. why did you? You could have just made this like any of the
0: other characters. Like why yeah, did you make it? No. What's the other one's <laughs> name? Snotlout. I mean, I, don't know. I, I, I look, think putting I like him in uh, a uh, putting, uh, putting him name? in a love triangle love. with Hiccup's mom and Eric was a bold choice. Yeah. That was probably the film's weirdest shining star, but I don't know. Mm, yeah, that was weird. But um,
2: I, I think the only <laughs> one of these, the only one of those uh, student characters I like is the McLovin one. So I wish it was just
0: him. <laughs> oh, I, I gotta say, I fish mean,
2: legs. Yeah, fish that one.
0: Legs, yeah. Uh, I will say Kate Blanchett too. Like the fact they got her to come back, you know, uh, I would be in love with her too. You know, I, I don't care whose mom she is. But yeah, that said. I, I think this is an overall pretty good movie. I I, I definitely walked away from it feeling satisfied and, and I I heartily recommend it to, to anybody who's a fan of the franchise, anyone who's even remotely liked these films. I think there's a lot to get out of it here. Maybe you should manage your expectations like you're saying, Will, because maybe it's not going to work as well for everyone. But yeah, I have a hard time looking at this film and and seeing, well, maybe they should have done this or maybe should they should have done that. I think- I think it handles pretty well, and I I appreciated seeing this in IMAX. I, I don't like the 3D. I know a lot of people really like the 3D of the second film, but to me, I I think that like the visuals are really great when they're at their brightest. And this this is a movie with like some really bright scenes, like when you actually see like the hidden world caves and all of that comes to life. The the way that the clouds interact with sunlight. I mean, there are just shining literally shining moments in this film that make me really enjoy it all around so for me my final grade for this one would be kind of a mid b plus it's not like a high b plus you know it's not super close to like the a territory but b plus i mean i think that it's you know for anybody who's a fan, they should definitely seek this one out. I don't know though how some people who might be mixed on the series might take it. So, what about you, mm. Sam Nolan?
1: Uh, I'm going to give it a a really, really high B. It's like it's just one little one little mustache hair off of a B plus. I think this this series that is a uh, essentially about like sort of uh, dragon equality, pretty much, and uh, advocating for pacifism. Uh, I know we didn't touch on that too much, but I really thought that was effective uh, in in all three of these, and I think this is a really good conclusion. Uh, I might even be willing to see it again, which God knows I don't uh, I don't do often. <laughs> but
0: <laughs> who has a time?
1: But yeah, I, I was very very satisfied by this.
0: All right, and then end us off on a really high note. We'll Ash. Oh boy. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, I mean, upon rewatch, I think I gave the first movie a B. It just still felt a little too formulaic for me, but I do think the high points of that film are are so good. I I especially love the relationship between Hiccup and Toothless in those films. It has a nice, my neighbor Totoro vibe that I think is really sweet. Um, Mm -hmm. Upon rewatch, I gave the second movie, I think a B plus. I really wasn't expecting that. Uh, But yeah, this one, I was, I was veering towards C plus throughout the whole thing. I just felt like really not much emotionally from the film. And I just found it was just kind of stagnant in a way that I was disappointed by, but I think those last like 15 minutes really uh, worked their magic on me, and I it kind of pushed me over the edge and allowed me
0: to soar away with the series. So uh, uh, for that, yeah. I'll give it uh, a light B minus. So it sounds like to me, in five years, in a similar fashion, you'll rewatch right, it. Right? I'm going to rewatch this movie. <laughs> <I'm> like, okay, <laughs> like, it's what like what a low B. <laughs> no, I doubt that. I doubt that. Yeah. All right. So so far, the film has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. 91% Great. of critics rated it. Fresh, and it's doing pretty well at the box office. I mean, it's projected to make forty to fifty million, and that's because it's opening in like every movie theater in the country almost. So had a lot of early screenings too. I mean, this, this film is going to definitely end the franchise on a high note when it comes to box office. Uh, uh... I think that uh, its opening day in Australia actually set a record for DreamWorks um, for how much it grossed on its opening day. The previous record holder was Shrek Two. So,
1: oh wow. Oh, wow. It's been yeah. a long time.
0: Now. Yeah, we didn't mention. It. I mean, this film has been released by a different studio with every yeah, release, yeah. right? So, um, so this time it was Fox. I think the first one was Paramount. Or no, this time was Universal. Fox was yeah. last time, and then uh Paramount was the first distributor. But it's always yeah. been DreamWorks.
2: Don't expect that the uh, three-disc uh box set for How to Train Your Dragon. <laughs> right.
0: No. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Anytime soon. Alright, that is how to train your dragon in the hidden world. About a B average for the cinemaholics. Let's move on to our next review, Fighting with My Family, which Will Ashton and I saw. I saw this one a while back. So Will, this is this one's more fresh in your memory. Now, yep. Fighting with My Family, it's a new sports comedy with just a tinge of drama. You know, I don't want to call it a dramedy, because I think that kind of gives the wrong impression, but. I'd say it's, a, it's more dramatic than you're giving it credit for, it, but yeah, it's yeah, mostly a comedy. Yeah, mostly a comedy. It's got it's got drama. But anyway, it takes place in the world of professional. I'm wrestling. Up for your mom. Specifically, it is a true story about a family of die hard WWE fans to the point where they have their own amateur wrestling gym that they run as a family business. So the mom and dad are played by Nick Frost and Lena Headey, respectively, and the two siblings are played. Or the two siblings are named Paige and Zach. They're played by Florence Pugh and Jack Loudon, respectively. So we have a clip from the film. In this scene, the whole family is having dinner with Zach's girlfriend and her family, who are not WWE fans, of course, and they get a phone call concerning their tryouts to join the world of professional wrestling. Here's a clip. Hello? Yeah, I'm, can I put you on speaker for a second? Yeah, hang on. going I don't know.
1: Go ahead. Am I speaking to Zach and
0: Brittany? Yeah.
1: My name is Hutch Morgan, I'm calling from WWE. We were very impressed by your tape, and April, we're bringing SmackDown to the O2 in London, and we'd like both of you to come down and try out for us. Uh, Hello? Uh,
2: they'd be very
0: happy to accept.
1: Good, and we already have a Britney, so just think of an alternative name.
0: Yeah, sure, okay. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, thank you, thank you very much. sir. No! <laughs> I
1: told you. I told you. It was a given. Sorry. What is the the WWE?
0: All right. That is from the movie Fighting With My Family, which just hit wide release. Uh, So as it happens, Paige makes it past the first round of tryouts early on in the film. But Zach does not. So part of this movie is a fish out of water story where Paige has to go to Miami and train to become a WWE diva even though she's a bit of a social pariah among her colleagues, she has to contend with her trainer. You heard him on the phone there, Vince Vaughn. And the other part of the movie is Zach's story. The other half of his sibling rivalry where he feels stuck in his life and in their small English town, without any clue how he can settle for something less than his dreams. Now, Will Ashen, what did you think of this film? You know, I, I've, I've talked about it on the show before. I don't have too much else to say. I just really liked it. I think it's really funny. I like the drama moments, and I just think it's a pretty good crowd pleaser. But, you know, you like professional wrestling more than I do. So I feel like you have Uh, a better understanding of the world that this film is kind of celebrating.
2: Well, let's get this record straight. Um, I just have a lot of friends who are really, like, into wrestling. So I've been kind of immersed into that culture through like a second party. I'm not really that much of a wrestling fan. That's not to say I dislike wrestling, but it's not. I, I don't want anyone to think like, oh, like I go to events and stuff like that. I, I have a very much a, like third tier understanding of wrestling at best. So uh, once that's clarified, um, as for the film itself, uh, I thought it was fine. I enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's certainly a crowd pleaser, like you said. Um, I think it has a good heart on its sleeve. Um, I thought. Can we just talk about Florence Pugh? Like real quick and just how like she is amazing. And uh, I have only, I think, seen three movies she's done. And like each performance, like if you if I had not known she was the same actress, I would have had no idea. Just the way uh, she transforms into each part is pretty so incredible. The,
0: the three that I think of are Lady Macbeth, which was when mm-hmm. she got on my radar, Outlaw King and this that, one. What, what was the third one for you? Uh, oh, The Commuter. That was the third thing. I saw oh, for I forgot she was in that. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, she was. Uh,
2: I, I didn't love that. She movie, but disappeared yeah. into the role. I, I'll yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I'll say it that much. Right. You you just uh, you were so immersed in that story. Right. Mm-hmm. And you just didn't even think about that performance. Right. Uh, but yeah, Um, I definitely I mean, as the title suggests, I think the family dynamic is strong. I think you can feel that heart between them. And I think Nick Frost, like I, I'm kind of bummed he doesn't do more stuff. Like I think he, he maybe does more stuff. And I just don't see it. But like he. He brings so much life and warmth and energy to every part he plays. Mm-hmm. I think he gives, I would say, probably the best performance in this film, film away from Florence Pugh. Um, but uh, otherwise, um, for a Stephen Merchant film, this kind of felt like by the numbers to me. Like I was kind of expecting to be a little more subversive, I guess, with him involved.
0: Maybe like a little on sharper. based a true story. So I, I right. do wonder if he was a little but, bit limited with that.
2: I mean, it's more inspired by a true story, I'd say. Because, like, I mean, the real beats of the film aren't, like... I mean, it just kind of hitting what's expected. But they really don't dive into too much of the, the family dynamic. Like, they don't even talk much about the mom who has a history of, like, drug-related uh, stuff from what I've been told and stuff. Like, that stuff feels weirdly absent It comes from up the in film. the film,
0: though. I mean, they, they talk they're about it. They mention it. Okay,
2: yeah, there's, like, yeah. a throwaway line. But, like, considering, like, if you really wanted to, like, shake it up. But I understand the movie... It's just trying to be a fairly straightforward, proud pleasing comedy with some drama in, as we establish. So I can excuse it for not diving too deep into that. Or even pages after story, which is pretty sad after the film. But um yeah, I mean, I really don't have too much to say about the film. I know you liked it a lot more than I did. And that's not to say I disliked it. I just think the story itself is like kind of almost oppressively kind of by the books. But I will say as I think Vince Vaughn's character says at some point in the film, it's not really about the story when it comes to wrestling. Like you you, you don't really come for like what the story is gonna be. You come for the emotion that comes with the characters and the warmth and like what they bring to the part. And I think that's where the movie excels. Like, I think it understands that about wrestling, and I think it understands that you have to have that energy. You have to like fully commit to what you're doing in order for it to work. And I think everyone involved they committed to their full content, and I think that's why the movie excels. Yeah, if not in a major way,
0: I, I think I think I was having that same feeling you were, where I was like, yeah, you know, this is kind of by the numbers. This is pretty straightforward, especially with Paige's, you know, fish out of water story that she has, and it's like, okay, well, you know, she's going to learn a bit about herself. Oh, those are the mean girls. There's that trope, but I will push back a little bit because I do think the the way that that resolves, where she kind of. You know, she does have a moment where she realizes that, you know, and not to give anything away, where maybe maybe part of it is like her sort of not really giving other people a break, right? And and to me, there, there was a little bit of subversion there. Like, there was enough for me to sort of be like, all right, you know what? This is a film that's sort of trying to you know, tell a story that's a little bit different. It's, it's not exactly Harry Potter where she's like the hero and she's perfect and the chosen one or anything like that. It, it's really about her learning how to like, you know, decide like, okay, is this really what I want to do? Like, is this really my dream? And I thought that that was a really tough question for the movie to answer, especially because it was so dramatic with Zach, you know, and you really fell for him and like, what is he going to do now? And I don't know. I just think it really worked for me. I think that, you know, calling out the emotion of it, it is right, but I don't think this film works nearly as well as it does without the comedy, because it's like you said, I mean, Nick Frost and Lena Headey, all of the scenes, my favorite scenes in this film are when they're all together. So it kind of is a little bit of a bummer that they're not all together for a lot of the film, because, you know, Paige goes to, you know, spends a bunch of this film, you know, overseas. But I do really like when they're all together because it's, it's just hilarious. Like, it's just really good writing. And you can tell that Stephen Merchant really wanted to make a movie, you know, that actually, brought in a lot of comedy for those scenes. I I just felt like he actually really cared about those scenes and wanted to really nail the comedic timing in them. Like in that clip, I mean, just seeing everybody like celebrating and then like the, the record scratch, you know, like when they ask what is, he's actually, yeah. uh, Playing the dad of the person who doesn't know what the WWE is. Right. Yeah. And it's a fun little cameo. I don't know. I I think this. You're right. The film has its heart on its sleeve, and I think that if you give it a chance, if you actually go check it out and you go into it sort of expecting like this kind of just you know what feel good kind of based on a true story, definitely loosely based, but something something that might remind you like why you enjoy sports movies. I think that it's a better than better one that we've gotten in terms of like sports comedies. We don't get them super often. And I think this is one of the better ones. Yeah, right. Uh, I think that this one is just one of those like breezy check it out. You're probably going to love it. I mean, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is in it. How offensive can it be? Uh, The role he was born to play. There you go. (laughs) I was waiting for you to say that. So, yeah, I'm pretty high up on this one. Uh, I actually I gave it a very, very high B teetering on a B plus. What about you?
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, like I say, I think it's worth checking out, but I don't think it's like a must see. I think it's like the best rental you could get blockbuster 2005. Um, <laughs> like I think that's praise. where I see it. Yeah. So <laughs> I think, I think if you check it out, like, I don't think you need to go out of your way to see it, but if you do see it, I think you'll enjoy it fine. So I give it a B minus. Uh,
0: okay. Sam <laughs> Nolan's you have been silent for too long. Um, oh, yeah. you did, you did something that Will and I weren't able to do. You watched every Oscar short, Every short film that was nominated in the different categories, the short, the documentary short films, the live action narrative short films and the animated short films. Now I saw all the live action ones and I saw a few of the animated ones, but I did not see any of the documentary ones, but you saw all of them. So real quick, I will say all, all I want to say to listeners about these shorts is skip the live action (laughs) ones. They, They are terrible. Like that are they that was bad one of or the just worse they're both like it, it's yeah. not that they're bad filmmaking they are just oppressively sad in a way that just to me it like betrays why we should see movies, I guess like there's no point to it it's like it, it's just pointlessly mean spirited and like just tragic mm. and just playing with emotions in ways that I'm like we don't need as a society in my opinion, but what did you think Sam did you love?
1: Well uh so if we if we're talking about the live action ones first um it's it's uh my research has taught me that the oscar nominated live action shorts in recent memory anyways uh are notorious for highlighting children in peril and mm-hmm. by god do they live up to the moniker with this one There's uh, only like one where that's
0: not the case and it's the only one that i tell one her where it has nothing to do with
1: it yeah it's, I, I actually, you know, there were only two that I that I disliked. so I, I didn't dislike them all, but I think you there you certainly have a point that uh, maybe this isn't like what we should be we, we should be uh, uh, striving for in our entertainment. So I guess should should I just talk about them like individually? Please do. Okay, so uh, I guess uh, the way the way it works um, is that with with these Oscar shorts uh, every year, uh, theaters around the country uh, sort of package all of the all of the shorts nominated for a specific category into one program and show all five of them in rapid succession in theaters. Um, and as a result, a lot of these movies that aren't meant to be like marathoned sort of can like add up <laughs> over the course of the program. And I think usually they show them. Uh, they show them alphabetically, at least that, as far as I could tell. Uh, so, if we're talking about the live-action shorts, the first one uh, alphabetically is a short called Detainment, which tells which, the true story.
0: That's not yeah. the case because that's not the order that I saw them in. First one I saw was uh, Madre.
1: Oh, really? Did they show yeah. them in a different order then? They okay. did.
0: Detainment for me was number three or four. So, how about that?
1: Oh, no kidding! Jeez. So they they saved it
0: for last. Okay. Well, no, the last uh, one was for me was Skin jeez oh golly jeez. that's well yeah <laughs> okay
1: so i guess uh, and there's 15 of these so i'll try to be as concise as i can so detainment tells the true story uh it happened in ireland the early 1990s two young children who are like what 11 years old maybe 12
0: mm-hmm. yeah uh
1: who are and and uh, trigger warning i guess who are convicted of kidnapping and murdering a two-year-old child and it intercuts between these like interrogation scenes uh, that are based on actual tapes collected from the uh, event um, and intercuts with that between a restaging of sort of the lead up to the to the killing itself and the kidnap and everything. And watching these events, Like it's structured in a way that it sort of slowly reveals the events in what I can only assume is supposed to be some sort of dramatic, like, oh, I see what's going on here. Each one just more, more brutal than the last. And by the time it ends, the credits started rolling. I was like, that's it? Like they put us through all of this for nothing. There's like, there's no takeaway there's no yeah. real point that I could figure out and I've been racking my brain trying to figure out. There's no r- real point to this p- particular short except shock value and they just want you to Israel. wallow
0: in it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It is unwatchably, un- unnecessarily, unrepentedly horrific. That and it only serves to like depress and torment the viewer. There, and there are ways to do that. You can do that in like a, a, a Lars von Trier way where it's sort of uh, – that's sort of the idea is that compassion is like poison or something. And uh, that Machiavellian way of thinking only for yourself and recognizing, just just having no illusions about the evil in the world. Uh, there's a way to do that. This is not it. And the, the little snippets of conversations I heard leaving the theater – uh dictated that much and it doesn't help i don't know if you knew this john but the director did not consult the uh the the mother of the of the child who was murdered but while making yes. this short and it's and it's caused all this controversy over in england so i'll if, if this if this wins like i don't know when this comes out sunday right
0: yeah I'm rooting for Marguerite, the only one that I I thought at all was probably worth seeing out of curiosity. But
1: yeah, yeah. So,
0: because uh, I will say, at least, at least skin, you know, skin kind of does the same thing, but it actually does have a takeaway at the end. Like it's actually saying something. It's super depressing and it's not something that I particularly wanted to experience, but it did actually Mm. have a point. Whereas, yeah, you're right. I don't think it says it very well. Yeah. yeah, I would agree with that too. But yeah, I think that detainment doesn't have a point, except for you know, like I think th- I don't use this super often. I think it gets overused. But yeah, it's it's tragedy porn. That's what it is. It just exists yeah. to sort of like make you feel an abundance of like a very aggressive emotion, and that's it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an exercise in in just negative vitriol and it's miserable and it's just I, I think like not to give anything away i think it's the worst of all these shorts uh so i really hope this doesn't uh doesn't get any more attention than it deserves but it was nominated for an oscar so yeah. who knows maybe we're maybe we're missing the deeper point or something so, so which uh, one anyways, was your favorite the, the one that was my favorite was marguerite so we're on the same page though. okay cool all right, so Marguerite, uh, it, it tells the story of an uh, an old woman, an elderly woman, uh, living at her home. It, it takes place in France, right?
0: Uh, Canada, I think.
1: Canada, yeah. Okay, they're speaking French, so I was confused. Yeah,
0: I think it's Quebec. Um,
1: yeah, Quebec. There's a couple of shorts from Quebec, actually. Uh, but regardless, uh, it t- it's an elderly woman in Quebec and uh, has like a nurse-slash-caretaker, comes to her house every day, and just sort of— uh, just sort of, you know, takes care of her and stuff, uh, run of the mill sort of, uh, sort of, uh, elderly existence. Um, and then one day the, uh, the caretaker's phone rings, she goes over and answers it and has a conversation with what appears to be some sort of, uh, significant other. And the old woman is like, Oh, so who is that? Your boyfriend? And then the old woman or, or the caretaker says, uh, well, my girlfriend, yes, and you're like, oh, here we go. Uh, I see what's happening here. And you think you think it's going in a completely different direction. The the direction I thought it was going in uh, was was going to be in the depressing route where the old man's just completely intolerant. Um, which I
0: and, I didn't actually. I, I kind of saw what this short was doing, which is actually probably why, even though it's my favorite, that's not saying too much. <laughs> like I kind of was like, yeah. oh, okay. And I liked when it was being a little bit subtler about what it was saying with the old woman. But then she yeah. says everything at the very end that she's feeling. And I was like, wait a minute, this has yeah. been an entire short where you're not good at saying what you're feeling. And <laughs> all of a sudden she's like, you know, you know, poem saying. So I, I think it's kind of a weak short among way weaker shorts, personally,
1: yeah, that's that. That's not a bad a bad way to put it. I do think it's a little clunky, but I do think that this is this one is effective. Uh, I think it's just sort of really uh, quiet and poetic in a way that I think uh, a short can really sustain over that, like a, a feature length movie couldn't quite do to the same effect. Although I'm sure there are examples, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this one, I, I. I Uh, I I had a good time with this one. I think it's interesting. Um, Yeah. Some of the other ones. uh, What do you think of, what do you think of Fav or Fav,
0: however you say that? That was the second one. So I I was a little bit like watching that. I still wasn't super depressed, but I was a little bit like, man, you know, like what's the point of this? (laughs) You know, this one is about like a couple of kids who are like goofing around and something really bad happens to one of them because of the other. And you're just like, okay, well, let's see what happens oh, the end, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing Yeah, where it feels yeah, like the beginning be the of a film, not a short film, mm-hmm. like that's, the real movie is what compromise. happens next.
1: I, yeah. And, uh, I think that's the, that's the compromise with shorts is that because it's not, you know, feature length is not taken over, taking place over a huge span of time. Uh, it they can't necessarily have three acts. So a lot of them are very simply just setup and payoff. Uh, and there's only so many things you can do with that, I suppose. Um, so it yeah, is yeah. That's something the same that thing
0: I, with Madre, right? Because that one is nothing but setup and disastrous payoff. Like it's like <laughs> yeah, watching a car is, crash exactly. in slow motion. I
1: I really dug the the setup of Madre, uh, which is about filmmaking
0: uh, uh, was interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it's all in one shot. It's about a woman uh, who uh, lives in Spain, I believe, and gets a call yeah. from her son who's on some sort of vacation uh, getaway uh, with her ex-husband. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's revealed over this phone call that the, the kid is lost in like on like a beach somewhere, has yeah. no idea where. And it all it all it is is just the the mother and and her mother, the grandmother, uh, just sort of scrambling around trying to figure things out. It ends insanely anticlimactically, but as as an exercise in sort of building tension from one location where for all intents and purposes, the excitement is not happening I thought this was really effective. Uh so if only it came to any sort of definitive conclusion. Right. And I had a really weird like like credits song which didn't help at all. I'm like what was what was this even supposed to do? Yeah. So I'm a little torn on this one but I I am willing to come down on that one and say that I that I did like it. Uh what do you think of Skin, John? It's <laughs>
0: pretty bad. It's pretty Yeah, bad. it's pretty bad. It's It's, yeah. it's annoyingly <laughs> bad. So Oh, yeah, it, it, You basically follow the lives of these like, I, so they're like neo-nazi, a neo-Nazi family and you're watching yeah. the, the dad and the mom sort of like raising this kid in this culture of neo-Nazis and like they go around like shooting you know, fully automatic rifles and they just live a very dangerous lifestyle and something happens to the dad uh, because he has a run-in where he just like out of nowhere decides that he's going to beat up this African-American man, you know, Mm -hmm. basically for no reason, because he was just like at the grocery store. And from there it becomes a film that's just like, it does something with like blackface that you cannot unsee that I think was just again, oppressively hostile, I guess. And there is a way to do this short, but I think you said it right where it's like, it's, it's the way that they do it. And that I just don't see it. I, I don't see the point or the the takeaway really being effective. There is a point, there is like a message, but it's just super, just completely tragic, I guess, because there's like a one mm. final thing that happens. It's like tragedy upon tragedy and it just feels hopeless. It's like if at the end of Florida Project, you know, like Mooney like runs over her best friend with a bus <laughs> and, like <laughs>, laughs into the sunset. <laughs>
1: that's yeah but that, you're not wrong about that that's uh it it is just sort of building upon its own bleakness throughout the entire runtime and the only conclusion it comes to happens seconds before the credits run there's no time for reflection and it really and you said it was the last one I think it's the last one alphabetically too so it's the last one I saw too and just leaving the theater after that the conversations were like what the hell was that Jeez, what was even the point of that yeah uh so yeah this one doesn't work maybe has a point if you think about it but there are this is so not the way to do it that it's just a shame uh should we should we move on to the documentaries now
0: (laughs) (laughs) well we don't have a ton of time so let's do it this way uh just we can just do your favorite of the documentaries and your favorite of the animated ones
1: okay so my favorite of the of the documentaries is a is called Period End of Sentence. Um, it's the one I saw last, and the oh, period that's what I entered, question, I
0: put that as my prediction to win. I haven't even seen it.
1: Nice. I wouldn't be surprised uh, having seen it. So I and I hope it wins because it's my favorite, obviously. So the period in question, as you may have guessed, uh, is menstruation, and it's about how in India there is a huge huge stigma around it like it opens with uh interview footage where they're asking uh just just locals who happen to be wandering around uh what they know about menstruation and they and some of them say like oh yeah it's a it's like a thing uh it's a disease that mostly affects women or something or it's something that god does to intervene yeah it's 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 uh there's a uh, a lot of, a lot of misinformation going around and it's not just in India, uh, obviously, but yeah, there's sex ed controversy all over the world. Uh, and it's about this group of women who thanks to the invention of these, uh, sanitary pads that they can mass produce re- by on uh, relatively cheaply, uh, they're on a mission to raise this sort of widespread awareness, uh, by just, trying to sell them to, to marketplaces and just spreading the word in general. Uh, and they're not entrepreneurs. That's the thing. They have families and jobs, and they're also trying to sort of do what they can to fix this issue that affects them all around. Uh, and it becomes this rousing, infectious, uh, inspirational, like like feminist microcosm of how there's a problem and they're just taking it into their own hands and it doesn't even like i i don't know it's hard to like spoil the ending or whatever but it doesn't end in like a huge earth shattering success but it doesn't even matter because it's thrilling uh to see to see uh to see them take a means of oppression and sort of weave it into their own way of fighting back. And they're saying, let's do something because nobody else will. And I think it really serves the purpose of a documentary, the best, which is to inform and to educate and not so much to entertain. Uh, But this one does all three. And I think it's really, it, it does the best thing that a documentary can. It inspires the viewer to like spread the word, uh, or or like volunteer for a cause that it's choosing to highlight or even just donate to a cause and and indeed there is a website it's called uh, padproject.org uh where you can just donate to this cause so I, re- I really really dug that one and it was the last one so it ended on a high note cuz the rest are depressing it is the itself. end of
0: sentence right
1: it really is end of end of uh, the program too and uh, and do you mind if i talk about my least favorite documentary real quick yeah okay so this is the one that I can say that I really didn't care for. It's called A Night at the Garden. It's about 10 minutes long. It's the shortest of all of them. And what it is, it's it's completely constructed of archive footage that was recently found, I don't know exactly when, but not, not long ago, uh, of a Nazi rally that took place in 1939 in Madison Square Garden.
0: I've heard about and this they, one, yeah.
1: They packed the house completely. I don't know the exact number. It's something like 20,000 uh Americans attended that under the guise of uh I believe it was advertised as like a pro-American rally or something something to that effect.
0: And America First, maybe
1: it, it's something like that. Yeah. It was it was definitely taking a patriotic angle, uh, right on the brink of World War II. I think it was mere months before the uh the invasion of Poland. Yeah. And I'm describing it. It probably sounds really interesting. It's actually not because it really doesn't go to any lengths to go beyond simply presenting the archive footage. And I think it's an, it's a very interesting historical footnote with numerous interpretations. And obviously the intent, seeing as how it's released now is to sort of draw a parallel between that, how this was allowed to happen uh back in back in 1939 and what's going on now obviously i'm sure i don't need to elaborate on that um and also just the significance to the time period uh and and even just the self-contained event like how it took place that's all interesting but it never really explores any of that so the way i see it any of that interpretation that i just said is sort of just projection like it would have been it would have it could have been released as is in like nineteen sixty four for instance uh and it and it would have uh would have been maybe remembered better, but I think I just don't think it fulfills any sort of function like the the function of this movie doesn't makes no sense to me uh and so maybe I'm wrong because uh, I'm not as yeah, into like, the political it, yeah, landscape I mean, it, as I'd like but yeah,
0: it, it sounds like it'd be more. You know, effective as like a now this video right on Twitter, uh-huh. where it's just sort yeah. of like, did you know? It doesn't really sound like a documentary or anything like that. So I can see why where your criticism is coming from. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. It's the like, only the only
1: intent I can possibly think of, and maybe it uh, worked in a roundabout way because it didn't inspire me to like sort of look into it, but is to inspire further research. Uh, the problem with that is that it's presented so straightforwardly that I wonder if, if anyone's going to be compelled to dig deeper. So can't say I really cared for that one, but who, who knows? I've been wrong before and it will um, certainly happen. again.
0: It's been a while though. Okay. Wrap things up the animated ones. I think, you know, I saw bow obviously, and I think that one's going yeah. to win. It's my favorite of the ones I've seen, but, uh, did you have another one, you know, is that your favorite? And if not, or if, even if it is, what's one that you want to highlight? It, it's actually not my
1: favorite although bow is very good and I'll just say this I, I can't go into detail on in all of them all five of the animated shorts are good if you're gonna see any of these uh, any of these programs uh, I would recommend the animated ones and and it's gonna be playing for like the next week or so uh so these these are still playing in theaters uh so uh for the next couple of days so the clock is ticking but not as fast as you might uh, think um, mm-hmm. but uh the one that was my favorite I, I'm I'm sort of torn between two, uh, One Small Step and Weekends. Uh, suffice to say that, I recommend them both. But I think the one I want to focus on is Weekends, uh, which is very interesting for a number of reasons. For one thing, the animation style is very uh, was, was very striking to me. It's very abstract, very kind of surreal uh, at times. And I really love when animation goes to that territory. It sort of fulfills the, uh, the, the potential of animation where you can literally do anything. Um, it tells the story of a young boy who's not like less than 10 years uh, old, not very old, uh, who has, whose parents are divorced. And, uh, as a title might imply the weekends as is sort of commonly perceived is the time with dad. Mm -hmm. And the way that's portrayed as just being the best most carefree time ever is just so delightful to see and how it's all sort of presented through the perspective of the kid and that's that's where it gets into the sort of abstract surrealism of it all uh whereas in contrast with the weekdays where he spends time with his mother uh that's shown as very excuse me sort of straightforward uh and a little drab not bad but just sort of you know just sort of a uh, it just sort of happens, and that's about it. And I really, really dug that that uh, contrast. It doesn't amount to terribly much, but I don't think it's meant to. I think it's mostly just an exercise in style of how an animation animated short can sort of present these two extremes. Through an experience that many of us, uh, myself included, can relate to of having divorced parents and sort of having to divide the time between the two of them. So I really, really dug that one. But I, but all five of them are good. So uh, yeah. that 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 is a winner
0: in my case. I, I do know that you know it has somewhat of a shot, and I, so I know that Trevor Jimenez did it. He was uh, he's an animator yes. for Pixar. So oh, no. yeah, I, I wouldn't be too surprised if it won. But yeah, I think Balb is probably going to carry it. Um, just because that yeah, one was such it, a has, good. it has
1: the most traction, that's for sure. Yeah. And I do want to say, I saw the animated shorts in a theater. There were like four of us in there. The <laughs> dynamic was so much different when yeah. I, when I saw it in front of Incredibles 2, when there's only four of us in there, uh, there, that, that one moment, that one huge, like shock reveal, you know, the one of, of yeah, what yeah. I see plays so much differently and i almost burst out laughing just how much different that played uh so if for nothing else that moment alone made the entire thing worthwhile
0: wow okay i I wasn't sure if you're gonna be like oh it was worse without you know a big crowd but uh, it doesn't it sounds like you still enjoyed it quite a bit
1: oh it's just as good the short i love i love bow i think it's really good yeah
0: i really like it too but okay yeah those of those of you listening, you already know which of these shorts won, of course. So we won't belabor with any predictions or anything like that. But let's get into a film now that we've we've done a lot of we've been a little short lately, and <laughs> it's time to it, it's time to return to feature length. Will Will Ashen. there there's a new film that just came out on Netflix. It was at Sundance. I didn't have a chance to see it, um, but I started watching it before we recording. I'm like an hour or so in, but this one's called Paddleton. Well, Ashton, what, is, what is this film? What, what is it about, and should people check it out?
2: Yeah, Palatin is the new DePlace Brothers production. It is, uh, I believe, part of their uh, Netflix deal, uh, or at least the, the one they put together a couple years ago. Um, but it stars Mark Duplass and Ray Romano, and they're both kind of uh, lowly guys who have fairly mundane jobs and mundane lives and they are neighbors but they're basically best friends uh in this kind of sad quiet life they live together uh if in separate residences but uh the film starts with uh, them discovering that mark duplass is basically terminal cancer and that he is going to die uh fairly soon probably in the next six months and um as they're kind of just doing their normal thing still there is kind of a sad pause throughout their lives now like they just spend a lot of time together they play this game called Paddleton, which is like uh kind of like um paddle ball but there's like a trash can involved it's a little weird but
0: Oh, I buddy. do have I do have a clip um, that kind of oh, cool. sets the scene here, but uh, yeah, so here here's a clip from Paddleton. This is like one of the first scenes. I think it's the first scene in the film where they're in the they're in the hospital room, and yeah, I think it's Michael. He's just been told that he has you know this cancer. So here's a clip. So you think it's bad? We don't really know, which is why I think it's important for you to see a specialist. You'll do a biopsy, more tests, and.
1: What do you think, though? What do you think about it? What do you, I mean, you've seen it and all. What do you think? Do you know how bad it is?
0: I mean, at this point, I don't really know.
2: But you can tell us something, right? Can you tell us something?
0: Don't you have
1: to say? It's, okay. it's I don't think she... I mean, I think she's... she's how about... She, she, all right, she, she, listen. How about this? How about I'm going to make a statement? And if it's a true statement, then you don't have to correct me. And you don't have to say anything to me. Okay? So, is what Michael has incurable yeah, that's a question you gotta it has to be a statement All right, state, a statement. A statement the all right so truth. my statement is what Michael has is incurable that's it you understand again because you're not saying anything now I don't know if that's <laughs> I don't know if you, if that's because you understand what we did you see all the president's men
0: all right, that is from Paddleton um, yeah I'm really went, liking um, it so far <laughs> I think that that's a great way to start the the whole movie yeah it's I mean, that scene is intentionally
2: funny, but it's like also like kind of sad and kind of yeah. like morose to like laugh at it. But it's like supposed to be funny. And that's kind of the weird tone that the film strikes throughout is that there is like this kind of underlining humor to everything. But it's always caked in sadness, like this sense of like longing and fear and uh, just contemplation about what's going to happen and how they don't really have like a happy ending in store. But they just kind of have to make the best of it as they can um the film yeah it, it's it's definitely one that i don't know if this is going to work for a lot of people it just seems like one of those films that uh in some ways it kind of reminded me of funny people which i think john you liked a lot as well right yeah 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 and i know that film kind of got like uh um i guess kind of mixed response from people because like they saw like adam sandler and like seth rogan this like film and it's like oh like what is this gonna be about like what shenanigans are they gonna get into and it's like Sandler <laughs> sandler's dying of cancer and he yeah. <laughs> uh and that's kind of like thing like ray romano's in this what's he going to be up to and it's like he's helping his best friend uh, i just i guess i should explain what the rest of the plot is so essentially mark the knows that he is going to die fairly soon that there's like no real like cure he can have and that instead of prolonging the inevitable he's just going to essentially have like assisted suicide and uh, they have to get like these medications that like does the job and it's like this kind of road trip comedy in some ways where they have to go to this uh, prescription or this pharmacy uh, six hours away to get it and they have to like stay in a hotel and they have like kind of awkward interactions with the locals there and stuff and it's definitely like a low-key movie that like I said I can see this one not working to everyone's favor if you just not if that doesn't sound like very like fun and it's not really like a fun film to begin with but Uh, I I do think for me, though, it's definitely the type of comedy dramedy that I tend to enjoy, which is that they focus more on like the small stuff and just having it being very grounded and sincere and real to life in a way that uh, I mean, obviously, like some comedic situations are heightened, but everything about it feels fairly realistic or like how people would respond to certain situations and stuff. And I don't think the story does anything particularly remarkable. I think ultimately the execution is going to be almost exactly what you expect it to be from scene one. But I think that's kind of the point. Like, it's not really about what's going to happen. It's more about, like, kind of making it count. And I think in that sense, it does work. I'm really enjoying uh, this kind of new uh, second career for Ray Romano. Uh, I think, uh, as probably a lot of people saw in The Big Sick, and uh, he had a kind of big part in vinyl on HBO, which was a terrible show, but he was fantastic on Mm -hmm. it. Um, <laughs> he's like doing some of the best work of his career right now, yeah. and I'm loving it. It's a renaissance, and I'm all for it. Renaissance, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm all about it. Uh, I think he does a fantastic job in this, and he has a scene I won't give it away, but towards the end, it just it's so minor and so sweet, though it just it really worked for me. Um, so for me. I'm going to give it a B. Like I said, I don't think it's going to be a movie that's going to win everybody over, but I think if you kind of accept the movie at face value and understand what it's going for, I think you're going to get a lot out of it and I hope people check it out on Netflix.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm going to finish it soon after we finish this show. And I, you know, I think the critics are right there with you. I'm liking it so far as well. I think it is the kind of, you know, Sundance indie movie that's very much in my favor. Like, this is the kind of film, like, when I was, you know, right out of college, well, one of the ways that I caught up on a lot of, like, the early 20-teens indie films was through Netflix, you know? You know, I had just started watching Netflix a lot more often, and, you know, daily, I would be watching movies just like Paddleton that are very low low notes, you know? they They just have sort of this... D feel to them, where you can just sort of take them in. You don't; they don't have any sort of like big stakes, but you, they do have characters that you can't get out of your head. So, I I definitely am enjoying this because you know, oh man, this is this is kind of like a little blast from my recent past. Uh, the director was Alex Lehman. I think this is his first film, but I know Mark no, Duplass third co-wrote third film. Okay, I, I wasn't aware of any of his other work, so I apologize. But
2: well, didn't he do Blue Jay and the documentary Aspergers or Us? No, I, Are Us?
0: Two films that those, have been on my
2: two films have been on my radar for a long time. Are I they feature a length to. though? Yeah, yeah. Blue Jays is oh, okay. a feature length film. That was the uh, Emily Moss.
0: Okay, I haven't was, seen like, it. I think, that was,
2: I think that's the first uh, Duplass film under their Netflix deal.
0: Okay. It came out in well,
2: 2016. Yeah.
0: Then we'll assume this is his third film. Uh, definitely the first one from him that I'm seeing. He co-wrote this film with Mark Same here, Duplass. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I really like the music in this. Julian wasted did the, the music here. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it ends and I'll give it a little grade as well once I'm done with it. And Will, I think you're doing a review for this film for the young folks, correct?
2: Uh, Yeah. I'm yeah. Sometime today I'm going to get a chance to write about it. So Uh, yeah, in the meantime, check it out.
0: Thank you as always for listening next week. We are going to hopefully be catching up on some TV stuff that we were going to talk about this week. But it's fine if, it, if we do it next week because we we haven't finished these shows anyway. So next week will probably be a little bit more TV-focused. The The new movie Greta is coming out, so we'll probably talk about that one. And along with uh, some other indie things that we might be able to catch, like Apollo 11 Uh, If we're able to see that and maybe some others, no false promises, but for now, thank you, Sam Nolan, for joining us on this week's episode. Always great to have you and uh, keep an eye out, of course, for our bonus episode this week for it happened one night. And if you like Mm -hmm. our show, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else where podcasts allow you to actually review things. All of them do. And you can always (laughs) go to cinemaholics.com to find everything that we're up to. Our social media links are in the show notes. And again, you can email us cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com. If you have any questions or feedback you'd like to give the show. From the Internet, California, I am John Negroni. From
1: the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Lush. And from the Internet, Colorado,
2: I'm Sam Nolan.
0: See you next time.